I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, the Senate Judiciary Committee held confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court of the United States. On this episode, we will explore Judge Barrett's views about the Constitution and statutory interpretation and how she might shape the Supreme Court if she is confirmed. We're honored to be joined by two leading constitutional scholars. Michael Moreland is University Professor of Law and Religion and Director of the Eleanor H. McCollum Center for Law, Religion, and Public Policy at Villanova Law. He served as Associate Director for Domestic Policy at the White House under President George W. Bush and has previously taught at Notre Dame Law, and he holds his PhD in Theological Ethics. Michael, thank you so much for joining. Glad to be with you, Jeff. And Kate Shaw is Professor of Law and the co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy at Cardozo Law. She previously worked in the White House Counsel's Office as a Special Assistant and Associate Counsel to President Obama. She's also a contributor with ABC News and co-hosts the Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Kate, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. Michael, you know Judge Barrett. You spent time with her and her family when you were a visiting professor at Notre Dame Law, and I had the pleasure of meeting her at your house uh, not long ago. Uh, Tell We the People listeners what they should know about Judge Barrett that they may not have gleaned from the hearings, and in particular, how she might, on the Supreme Court, foster bipartisan alliances. She praised in the confirmation hearings the friendship not only between Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg, but also between John McCain and Vice President Biden. Based on the Judge Barrett you know, can you imagine her reaching across the aisle on the court or not? I certainly can. I think this came through in the hearings, but she is she's a deeply kind person. She's a very generous person. Uh, she's a very open person uh, and hospitable. So obviously there are going to continue to be ideological disagreements uh, on the Supreme Court, uh, whether Justice Barrett is confirmed or not. But if she is, I, I do think she's the kind of person who will forge alliances uh, and, and will be able, in maybe the same way that Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg became such famous friends, that she's the kind of person whose openness and generosity, I think, will, will, will help the, the collegiality of the court uh, in, in, in certain ways. Kate, what did you glean about Judge Barrett's uh, judicial temperament and character from the hearings, and what kind of justice she might be in interacting with her fellow justices if she is confirmed to the Supreme Court? Well, as far as temperament goes, I think what we saw on display is what I had, had heard. I don't know a Judge Barrett personally at all, but I do know uh, many people who have practiced before her in the Seventh Circuit. Um, and I think she is universally extremely well-regarded kind of across the ideological spectrum for her professionalism, for her preparation, for her kind of kindness and decency to the lawyers before her. Um, I actually haven't heard one negative word on, on that score from anyone um, who practices before her. 
nor from former students or colleagues. So I, I, I very much agree with Michael that um, as a personal matter, uh, she came off well and that she is likely to be well-regarded personally uh, if she is confirmed to the Supreme Court. Um, she also you know, went out of her way to praise people like, well, of course, Justice uh, Ginsburg, whose seat she has been nominated to fill, uh, but also Justice Elena Kagan. Um, so so, so I, I certainly think um, I can well see her forging warm personal relationships. As far as reaching across the aisle um, and, say, reaching you know, moderate uh, compromise results in cases that might be divisive, I'm not sure I saw much evidence on display in the substantive answers that she did give that she is likely to be that kind of justice. Michael, Judge Barrett's judicial philosophy was extensively discussed in the hearings, and in particular her approach to originalism. Uh, She said in response to Senator Graham, uh, similarly for what I just said about originalism, for textualism, the judge approaches the text as it was written with the meaning it had at the time and doesn't infuse our own meaning into it. But she went on to uh, say, I want to be careful to say, if confirmed, you would not be getting Justice Scalia, you'd be getting Justice Barrett. And that's so because originalists don't always agree and neither do textualists. Michael, what kind of originalist and textualist is Judge Barrett, and in what ways might she agree with some justices uh, who consider themselves originalists and textualists and disagree with others? Well, she pretty clearly uh, in her writings and then again in these hearings uh, has committed herself to a view that in the in the debate in this area we call public meaning originalism, that the uh, meaning of a constitutional text is fixed at the time of its uh, enactment. Uh, and then the corollary to that would be what we call textualism and statutory interpretation, that uh, the text is the you know, governing central uh, way in which you analyze the meaning of a statute. Um, you know, and so I think it was a, it was a very rich uh, discussion of originalism, probably the most in-depth discussion of constitutional methodology for in one of these hearings for, for, for a long time. I do think that uh, a lot of the interesting debates that were uh, that are in this area, but also that we saw in the hearing, are around questions about, well, how, how far does originalism go relative to things like stare decisis, that is to say the force of precedent, when, when an originalist understanding of a provision of the Constitution might conflict with what the Supreme Court has decided in a particular area. So she's clearly committed to originalism and constitutional interpretation and textualism and statutory interpretation. But I think that uh, you know a lot of the cases that, uh, that she would be hearing as a justice would be in that area where there's debate about the force of stare decisis and other precedents. And also, as you say, the ways in which originalists themselves might disagree about say, the provisions of the Second Amendment, uh, to take a prominent example where Justice Scalia and Justice Stevens both engage in a kind of originalist argument in the, in the gun rights case from, from several years ago, but came to quite opposite conclusions about whether or not the Second Amendment protected an individual right to bear arms. So I think those are the kinds of debates that I think we'll continue to see from uh, Justice Barrett engaging in. Kate, on the court, Justices Gorsuch and Thomas both call themselves originalists and textualists, and yet they disagreed in a case like the Bostic case, where Justice Gorsuch focused more on the text of Title VII without looking at its uh, original public meaning, and and, uh, Justice Thomas took a different approach. On which side of that camp is 
Judge Barrett likely to fall. Um, and uh, I, I heard her at some point say that uh, when the text is clear, one does not look at original public meaning. Do, do you think that puts her closer to Justice Gorsuch or not? Well, so to start with Bostick, which is such an interesting example, and, and I don't know which way um, a Justice Barrett would have voted in the Bostick case, which found that Title VII and its prohibition on sex discrimination did encompass discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and in some ways, I think the fact that avowed textualists on the court, and, and you mentioned Gorsuch and Thomas, I would throw Kavanaugh into the mix as well, um, came out very differently on the same textual question. I think actually highlights the limits of textualism as a theory that promises a more predictable set of results uh, than do the theories against which uh, textualism has largely defined itself. So part of the promise of of textualism is that it would remove a degree of discretion and subjectivity from judging um, because, you know, the text is all there is. The text is the alpha and omega, um, as Justice Scalia said. um, And so the answer should be clear. But of course, text is indeterminate. And a case like Bostick, I think, just illustrates that even textualists can disagree sharply about what text means. Uh, And so I think to me, the question then is if text is indeterminate, what do we look to to help illuminate its meaning? Uh, And textualists are quite rigid in the sources that they deem acceptable. uh, And those include things like dictionaries, um, original public meaning so far as it is discernible, um, very much distinguished from the intent of the drafters of the text, canons of construction, this sort of list that I feel like is is fairly arbitrary uh, that kind of gives judges rules of the road to interpreting text. Um, You know, my inclination is that she would not have um, fallen on the side. And actually, I guess Justice Alito, I should throw in in Bostick as well, is not an avowed textualist in the same way as the others are, um, but writes what he uh, kind of captions as a textualist dissent from uh, the Bostick majority opinion that Gorsuch writes. Um, So I, I guess I tend to think she would likely be on the yeah, and the elite. I think she would have probably joined the Alito opinion in Bostick. I, I guess if I had to guess, although I'm not at all sure. Um, but I do think that that very case illustrates some of the limits of the method. Michael, well, let's dig into the tension you identified between originalism and adherence to precedent. In her discussion with Senator Coons, Judge Barrett discussed law review articles where she took up this question. She noted that scholars have identified six cases as so-called super precedents, that is cases that uh, scholars on neither side seriously calls for overruling and therefore should be considered settled. They included not only Marbury versus Madison and Brown versus Board of Education, but lesser known cases like Martin versus Hunter's Lessee and Mapp versus Ohio, the exclusionary rule case. She did not include Roe v. Wade on that list. Uh, tell us about Judge Barrett's approach to precedent based on her extensive writings as a scholar and a judge. Well, as uh, we talked about a little bit, she she is a former clerk to Justice Scalia, who famously called himself a faint-hearted originalist, and that was one way in which he kind of tagged his uh, commitment to originalism at the same time understanding that, uh, say, in certain contexts like the Commerce Clause, for example, that uh, a, a purely originalist approach might uh, might prove too upsetting to the settled legal order. And and while Justice Barrett has talked, or Judge Barrett has talked about Justice Scalia's own views on this and and, and her views as well, um, I, I do think that she evinces a, a very and. A, 
2013 Texas Law Review piece and, and others, she evinces a very kind of subtle way of kind of moving back and forth between, on the one hand, that methodological commitment to originalism and constitutional interpretation, but then recognizing the value of stare decisis, reliance interests, the stability of the legal order, and even the judicial process itself, where you have in a multi-member court, you have debate and disagreement, but you also have to forge coalitions. Uh, and of course, also just the the mere case and controversy requirement, that it's not as though the Supreme Court can just decide tomorrow we're going to revisit this precedent. They have to have a case brought before them and argued uh, in which uh, they're, they're persuaded that, uh, that the precedent either should be followed or junked. And so I, I think that this is, this is one of the areas where there's uh, a lot of debate among originalists and between originalists and non-originalists. Uh, and as I said earlier, I think this is an area where, where ju- uh, uh, Justice Barrett, if she's confirmed, is likely to be an intellectual leader on the court in, in trying to resolve some of these questions. Uh, but I do think that the the discussion in the hearing about certain precedents, not this list of super precedents, however authoritative that is, but you know other precedents, uh, including Roe versus Wade, uh, what what kind of approach you'll take to that is very much, I think, at the at the center of the debate right now. It is indeed. Um, so, Kate, uh, you know, on that question, based on her testimony, on which side do you think? Judge Barrett would fall. On on the one hand, we have Chief Justice Roberts, who's made clear his reluctance to overturn precedents, even those he thinks are wrongly decided. And the late Justice Ginsburg uh, told me repeatedly that she thought Chief Justice Roberts would not vote to overturn Roe. On the other uh, hand, uh, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, for example, seem to have made uh, more clear their, their willingness to overturn not only Roe, but recently perhaps the Obergefell uh, case involving uh, marriage equality. Uh, so on which line do you think Ju- Justice Barrett would fall? Well, so so first a beat, I think, on her originalism, if I might, which is, um, I, I think that, so Michael um, uh, reminds us that Justice Scalia identified himself at least once as a faint-hearted originalist. He also once said, I'm originalist, uh, but I'm not a nut, uh, by which he meant to draw a contrast uh, with Justice Thomas, um, who I think was more, is more a full-throated originalist and is willing to see that through whatever the destabilizing and disruptive consequences of adopting what he believes to be the correct interpretation of the Constitution. And I suspect that um, Judge Barrett has written thoughtfully about stare decisis, but I think she holds a potentially stronger view of originalism than Justice Scalia did. And so I could well see her falling more on the Justice Thomas side of the line, which is to say a commitment to originalism that would lead her to devalue stare decisis um, and potentially to upend settled precedent. I I don't think that she would, um, you know, do it without thought and care, but I think that she has both written and and said during the hearing things uh, that make me think that that if a decision is wrong enough, right, as Justice Thomas has described it recently, demonstrably erroneous, that's the standard that he has used, um, that weighs very heavily in the balance whether to overturn a prior precedent. And she did say that things like uh, reliance interests and the workability of a prior standard uh, are also important factors. But I think she said things that that at least suggested that she thinks that there are workability problems with the Roe and Casey test. Um, and I think that reliance is in some ways where all of the action uh, would be. So, so I think it's pretty clear, though she didn't say these words, that she thinks that Roe is demonstrably erroneous and unworkable. 
So how much work she thinks the reliance analysis does, I think, will answer the question. Um, And I suspect, I I don't just suspect, I feel quite strongly that if faced with a case um, asking the court to overrule Roe, and maybe not in the next term or two, maybe it happens in a few different steps, um, that she would very likely cast a vote to overturn Roe. Uh, Michael, Senator Lee asked Judge Barrett about court packing, and he said that Congress has the power to pack the court, uh, a decline to do that in the 1930s, um, and then asked her uh, whether she thought that the failure to follow a result the Constitution compels could ever be justified, and and she said no. Of course, she didn't address court packing, but could you imagine her and her fellow justices joining Chief Justice Roberts in an effort to avoid pressures to pack the court to uh, be reluctant to overturn decisions like Roe quickly, or do you think that she would be guided always by principle rather than pragmatic considerations? That's a hard question uh, to, to borrow a phrase that she, she used a fair bit the last couple of days. Uh, <laughs> it's a hard question to answer in the abstract, right? Uh, you know, what what the uh, you know what the cases would look like that would precipitate this and 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 the and the likely political fallout from them. Um, Look, I, th- I think that the court, led by the chief justice for institutional reasons, but the court of, of all of its members, I think, is always going to be concerned with its uh, with its legitimacy uh, and 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 pressure, uh, do or undo, coming from from the political branches. And sure, I, th- I think whether for you know purely kind of legal reasons about reliance or stability, but also for concerns about the political pressure, uh, I think that it would understandably be something that would be in the minds of the justices if, say, a case involving the overturning of Casey or Roe were, were squarely presented to them. But I also think that in the end, um, I think all nine, you know, all eight and soon to be nine, perhaps, uh, of them are also principal jurists who, uh, in the end, I think, make the right decision by their own lights. It is a hard question, as you say. Uh, Kate, what's your answer to it. As, as, as Michael says, all of the justices um, are concerned about institutional legitimacy. They, uh, Chief Justice Roberts has said they actually discuss it at the conference. But could you imagine not only a Justice Barrett, but some of the other uh, conservative justices uh, who might be inclined to overturn Roe declining to do so for pragmatic and institutional concerns? Or do you think that they would be guided by principle and overturn it? As far as Judge a uh, prospective Justice Barrett goes, I mean, I would imagine her reasoning very much along the lines of Justice Scalia's partial dissent in Casey, which is to say it is just wildly inappropriate um, for the court to entertain these considerations at all, right? The, what, what, Which way the political pressure would cut, remember in the joint opinion in Casey, the court says, uh, in part because we have been subject to this kind of political pressure, it is especially important for us to remain steadfast in reaffirming the core holding of Roe uh, so as not to appear to buckle to political pressure. And Justice Scalia says that those considerations are not ju- sort of reasonable judicial considerations. What, what our job is to do is to ask what the Constitution and law require. Um, and I could very well see a Justice Barrett basically reasoning along the same lines. Our job is to ask whether Roe is grounded in the Constitution, and it is clearly not. That's how I would imagine her coming out. Um, I just didn't see a lot of 
you know, kind of pragmatism on display. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I think that she seems quite formalistic. And if sort of, if, if her method of interpretation uh, leads her to a particular result in a case, I can see her viewing it as improper to even allow these kinds of institutional considerations to enter the calculus. Um, that said, uh, I certainly think that the Chief Justice is acutely sensitive to those kinds of considerations. Um, and I think that Justice Kavanaugh maybe has a degree of pragmatism in him that, that so that I could, I could well see a you know, kind of pragmatic block on the court of a Justice Kagan, Justice Breyer, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, trying to fashion some kind of compromise solution to keep the court out of the political crosshairs. And then the question is, can you find a fifth vote? And I genuinely don't know the answer. It would depend on what the compromise looked like. Uh, perhaps the opinion of Judge Barrett's that got the most attention in the hearings was uh, Cantor against Barr. It involved her dissenting opinion from a case involving Second Amendment Writes uh, a majority of her colleagues upheld a felon exception, which prohibited uh, felons from uh, possessing firearms under federal and Wisconsin law. Judge Barrett dissented, extensively reviewing founding era history to find no such exception, and she would have uh, confined it to those former felons who were dangerous. Michael, tell us about her reasoning in that case, uh, what it says about her. Uh, approach as an originalist and why she concluded that Second Amendment rights uh, were less susceptible to uh, felon exceptions than voting rights. Well, the case involved uh, uh, someone who was convicted for Medicare fraud, for um, fraud in selling foot implants, orthotic uh, shoe implants. And uh, so the question came up uh, that under Wisconsin law, if you are a, fel a convicted felon, you're barred from, from gun ownership. And Justice Barrett in her dissent said that, well, the Second Amendment, uh, which, of course, the United States Supreme Court in D.C. versus Heller said does protect an individual right to bear arms. And Justice Scalia's majority opinion does say, though, that it can still be subject to reasonable regulations such as exclusions for felons. But Justice Barrett goes on in this dissent to say, but in the case of a, of a nonviolent felon, uh, that the same considerations don't, don't apply and that therefore that uh, at least at, you know, at a certain level, uh, the, the state would have to show more with regard to why a nonviolent non felon such as this person should be barred from gun ownership. And that was by contrast with uh, felons and the right to vote where the 14th Amendment by its express text does allow for uh, for the ex uh, uh, exclusion of, of felons from from voting rights, but there's no such similar provision uh, for the Second Amendment. And this, of course, produced a lot of back and forth with uh, Senator Blumenthal uh, and some others. But I think in the end, Justice Barrett's dissent at least raises the right kinds of questions. I think that the uh, that it's very thorough in its in its historical analysis, and I think on the textual matter, uh, she's clearly correct that the Fourteenth Amendment and then subsequent Supreme Court precedent contemplate felons being uh, disenfranchised or having uh, continued restrictions on, on voting rights, which the states are then free to free to lift or not, uh, but that the Second Amendment does not contain a similar kind of provision. Kate, as, as Michael suggested, Judge Barrett did uh, distinguish between what she called civic rights, like voting and jury service, and individual rights, like the right to possess a gun. And she said that civic rights could be limited According to a virtue rationale, only virtuous citizens could exercise them, but individual rights could not. Uh, what did you make of that 
distinction and the historical analysis? And what do you think it says about her approach to the Second Amendment more generally? Yeah, yeah. So, so as to the opinion in general, I mean, I do think that it suggests that she um, also, you know, to kind of draw contrast with Justice Scalia, might and very likely does hold a more expansive view of the Second Amendment than even the author of Heller, um, who wrote a very long passage, as Michael mentioned that basically said nothing in our analysis should be viewed as casting doubts on longstanding restrictions, including prohibitions on felon possession. Um, And Judge Barrett sort of said, well, actually, I think we still need to do a case-by-case analysis. And in this instance, where we have this nonviolent individual, um, it's not right to assume quite so quickly that this person is categorically uh, disentitled to gun ownership. Um, And during the hearing, she actually referred to that, you know, nothing in this opinion should cast out this kind of exemption language in Heller um, as clearly dicta. And I actually was sort of, I'm not sure that I've heard anyone quite so um, straightforwardly refer to that part of the Scalia opinion, which was a significant piece of the opinion um, as pure dicta. And that suggests to me, you know, and that there's a list of other kinds of longstanding prohibitions that Scalia's seems to carve out for continuing exclusion from Second Amendment protection. Um, so it seems to me that whole list is now uh, in question um, on, uh, if Justice Barrett, or if Judge Barrett becomes uh, Justice Barrett. So so that, I thought, um, was a striking exchange, in particular in the context of several days in which she didn't want to give much substance or specifics. Um, she was actually quite happy to talk at some length about the Second Amendment. Um, you know, I, I think that to return to another theme, you know, she, the majority in, in Cantor, suggest that the kind of method that she is describing, which would, you know, involve this extremely labor-intensive and, you know, kind of deep historical dive into, you know, founding error restrictions and application of a restriction to a particular individual raising an as-applied challenge to a felon disentitlement law would just be unduly burdensome on the judiciary. Um, And these kind of a categorical prohibition on felon possession was just a more workable standard that, you know, did have support in historical practice which seemed kind of unmoved by those kinds of workability and administrability arguments. Uh, and so I think there, too, you sort of see on display a commitment to formal methods very much superseding pragmatic or functional considerations about the way that courts would be forced. And I think this is particularly true in the Second Amendment, where it seems as though this deep historical dive in every case um, would just take an unbelievable amount of time, if done thoroughly, if done well, um, by judges and law clerks. And yet she seemed to say, well, that's sort of the method that uh, that Heller prescribes, and so we just have to kind of uh, implement it. Uh, quickly, as to the distinction between voting and jury service um, and gun ownership, you know, I, I think she in the hearing she seemed to say, all you know, all I was doing, I wasn't suggesting a devaluation of voting rights or anything else. I, I meant to um, simply kind of repeat a distinction drawn in Heller. I'm, I'm not sure that's totally right. Um, and, and it's, and it's of course right that there is explicitly in the 14th amendment, this, this contemplation, um, uh, that states might deny the vote. Um, but it seems to me to, to, to read that there still is this this seeming hierarchy that she posits that doesn't seem that seems to go beyond that specific textual matter in the Fourteenth Amendment to suggest that potentially there is that she does view state entitlement to disenfranchise a pretty broadly um, and obviously holds a fairly fairly narrow view uh, at least as to disentitlement to to gun uh, possession um, under the Second Amendment. So I'm not sure she fully answered the question by just referring to Heller. I think that what she wrote in the opinion and said in the hearing uh, very much goes beyond what Justice Scalia said in Heller. Let's talk now about the Affordable Care Act. Michael, uh, Senator Coons and other senators quoted Judge Barrett's language from a law review article Uh, noting that in the original 
case that upheld the Affordable Care Act against a constitutional challenge, quote, Chief Justice Roberts pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute. Senator Coons called those fighting words as an originalist and textualist. Judge Barrett responded, I don't think that Chief Justice Roberts calls himself a textualist, but she stressed that the issue in the case that's coming down the pike before the court in a few weeks, California versus Texas, raises a very different question, severability, and she seemed to express uh, support for the doctrine of severability when it was available. Tell us about Judge Barrett's comments about the Affordable Care Act and severability. Well, this was an interesting example of how the politics of the nomination intersected most squarely with the, uh, you know, with, the, with the legal issues in play, because clearly right from the outset of the opening statements, Senate Democrats decided to make uh, this primarily a, a hearing about the Affordable Care Act and, and the effects of striking down uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, in, in this forthcoming case. But I do think that, uh, so first of all, yes, Justice uh, Judge Barrett has written uh, in passing briefly, but did point out that the Chief Justice uh, had a, let's just say, a kind of non-textualist or strained textualist reading of provisions of the Affordable Care Act, both in the the first case, uh, NFIB versus Sibelius, and then in the subsequent case involving uh, subsidies, King versus Burwell. Um, but that this case raises a different issue. Uh, Congress has now zeroed out the penalty uh, for the individual mandate. And so much of the action in this case will turn on this issue of severability. And without prognosticating, of course, what, what, what her commitments ultimately would be. I did think that her exchange yesterday uh, on the uh, second day of, of her own testimony in an exchange with Senator Feinstein where she talked about severability as a kind of Jenga game where you take out provisions of the statute and see if the rest of the statute can survive. And that uh, the fact that the Congress has now zeroed out the penalty for the individual mandate uh, but didn't disturb the provisions of the Affordable Care Act that are very popular, like coverage for pre-existing conditions and coverage for uh, kids up till 26 and so forth, that the fact that uh, there is pretty broad consensus uh, across the court. Um, uh, there's a case last term uh, in which Justice Kavanaugh wrote for the court uh, and touched on some of these issues involving severability, but pretty broad consensus across the court uh, that you can sever a provision of a statute even if, it's, if, if it is unconstitutional and leave the rest of the statute that Congress has enacted in place. Uh, I think telegraphs to my mind, pretty clearly that, uh, that the Affordable Care Act will not be struck down in this, in this forthcoming case. Kate, what did you make, uh, not only of Judge Barrett's comments about severability, but also of her criticism of Chief Justice Roberts' approach in the original Affordable Care Act case? And do you believe that uh, her approach to severability might mean in the future that uh, congressional statutes are trimmed rather than struck down in their entirety? You know, I think it's clear that she would have been um, with Justice Scalia and the other joint dissenters on the taxation argument in NFIB versus Sibelius would have, um, you know, would have, would have found that the law could not have been justified on that constitutional basis. I think she would have also been with the dissenters in King versus Burwell, um, would have found that that because the phrase established by the state um, read out of context seems limited to exchanges established by states as opposed to the federal government, subsidies are only available in those states that have created their own exchanges, um, which pretty much everyone acknowledged would have or, or very likely would have you know, led to the destruction of the Affordable Care Act. Um, so, so I think she probably would have voted in ways that, that 
destroyed in one way or another the statute in both of those cases. But she's, of course, right that this is a different challenge. The legal theory is different. Uh, And she shouldn't be understood to be hostile to the Affordable Care Act. She said this a number of times because she had written critically of the court's uh, majority opinions in, in those cases. I think all that is fair. Um, I think, again, she you know, was conspicuously more forthcoming about severability, uh, even in the context of this specific case, than she was uh, in her willingness to talk about other you know, specific substantive legal questions. Um, and I think she did kind of want to assuage concerns that, that she would likely vote in a way that would uh, result in the final, finally invalidating the entire Affordable Care Act. Um, and I think that it's right, you know, in the, the Barr versus the political consultants case from last term, the Kavanaugh opinion, also the chief justice's opinion last term in the Sala law case about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. In both of those cases, the Supreme Court found part of a statute unconstitutional and let the rest of the statute stand. Uh, so I think that's the right application of severability analysis. And even if the zeroed out mandate is unconstitutional, in this new challenge. I think the the best answer under existing doctrine is that the rest of the law can stand. But I just, I, I'm not sure how it squares with her textualist philosophy, to be honest. You know, she several times she said severability is about what Congress intended, what Congress have wanted the rest of the statute to stand. Well, that's not a textualist framing. That's an intentionalist framing. That's the framing that the Chief Justice used in King versus Burwell that she was very critical of. So, so it felt to me, honestly, like a fairly political answer that she had decided to give, which is that, you know, doctrine... Now, maybe that's she disagrees with severability doctrine, but would accept it. But I think that if you are as wedded to a method as she seems to be with textualism, I mean, Justice Scalia, I think, was fairly skeptical of severability, I, th- I think, or at least, you know, sort of in his later years, I think be- for this very reason, it seems like intentionalism. Um, and so I'm not sure how it squares with other things she said about her commitments when it comes to statutory interpretation. So I did think there was some tension there. Uh, Michael, let me ask you about Judge Barrett and presidential power. Uh, Senator Leahy, in a fascinating exchange, said he remembered having lunch with Justice Hugo Black and asking him about Brown versus Board of Education. And Justice Black said the court had to wait until they had a unanimous opinion because they knew the president would have to enforce the law. Uh, Judge Barrett, in response to that, uh, said the Supreme Court can't control whether or not the president obeys. A uh, court can pronounce the law, but lacks control over how the political branches respond. Uh, Senator Leahy asked her about a series of questions that might come before the court from whether the president has the absolute power to pardon himself to questions about whether the Foreign Emoluments Clause is an anti-corruption clause. She didn't answer those because they might be litigated or were under litigation. Uh, but based on her testimony and her writings, do you can you give any examples of cases where you think that uh, a Justice Barrett might challenge uh, the president, um, as the Supreme Court uh, did by a lopsided majority in the subpoena case? Uh, or do you think that she would be extremely deferential to presidential power? She hasn't written much on this issue expressly. And of course, the Seventh Circuit doesn't hear many, if any, uh, <laughs> presidential power cases. So, uh, I mean, there there were some issues about uh, you know some regulatory questions that have popped up in the Seventh Circuit where, where she where she either wrote or voted voted on a panel. Um, but I, I do think that look, she uh, rightly demurred in answering any questions about hot topics like the emoluments clause or 
or things like that. Um, I think that you know she's likely to have a lot of the same commitments that a lot of other uh, judicial conservatives have with regard to, um, say, aspects of presidential power. Um, although, again, I don't, I don't think she's, she's written extensively on that. Um, and I do think that the example of Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh in the presidential subpoena case, and even going back in the Nixon tapes case, all the Nixon appointees, uh, except, except Justice Rehnquist, who recused himself because he'd worked at the Department of Justice, all of the Nixon appointees voted against President Nixon and the Nixon's, Nixon tapes case, which I think is a, you know, and it's kind of a civics lesson, is a kind of welcome reminder that even if you're appointed by a president, uh, nominated and then appointed by a president after confirmation, that, uh, that a judge uh, still has the independence of mind to, uh, to you know, come to, the, uh, come to the, his or her own conclusions about whether or not to defer or not to what the president is doing. Kate, what did you hear uh, about Justice Barrett and presidential power? At the end of his exchange, Senator Leahy said he would submit to her a written question about whether the president has the power under uh, an executive order that he issued to conduct surveillance activities that haven't been authorized by Congress. Uh, we don't know how or if she'll respond, but uh, how would you read the tea leaves on her view toward executive orders in uh, particular and, and presidential power in general? She really said very little on this, and I think it was fair and reasonable for her to deflect some of the specific questions, but I think she actually really missed an opportunity um, to say some version of what Michael just said, which is justices vote against the presidents who appoint them all the time. Um, And so that's, of course, true about the Nixon appointees in the Tapes case. That's true about Justices Ginsburg and Breyer in Clinton versus Jones, the unanimous opinion finding that President Clinton did have to answer civil litigation. So, So I think that, you know, that there was an opportunity to make the point in response to some of the questions. So the question that, um, Dianne Feinstein asked about whether the president under federal law or the Constitution could delay an election or Cory Booker's question about whether a president should publicly commit to leaving office peacefully or to the peaceful transfer of power. Um, And I think those were actually softball questions that she could have answered by saying, of course, a president should commit to the peaceful transfer of power. Um, And no, I'm not aware of any arguments in favor of the president's power to unilaterally delay an election. And I think she was far too cautious in a way, you know, I I think it's right that she should not opine on matters that could come before her, but I also think it sends a potentially dangerous message to refuse to accept uncontroversial propositions like the peaceful transfer of power is a foundational democratic principle. And by declining to say anything that even suggested um, that she might you know, differ from or hold critical views of things the president has said, that suggested to me that there is reason to potentially worry about the kind of independence that she would display. And, you know, I think in terms of her background, it actually is, it's notable that unlike Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, uh, she doesn't have this executive branch background, right? That's actually been the model of recent appointees and uh, and she doesn't have it. And so um, so I wouldn't necessarily assume that she holds these expansive views of, of, of presidential power. But I just think that in particular when she was confronted with some of the state the president has made, um, which are out of the ordinary. These are out of the ordinary statements for a president to suggest that a justice he is, a, that, that a, someone he is attempting to put on the Supreme Court would pres- would vote with him in a disputed election case. Um, and, and she could well have, I think, without criticizing him directly or by name, di- have distanced herself from some of that rhetoric. Think about what Justice Gorsuch said when he called demoralizing and disheartening attacks on the judiciary. He didn't mentioned Trump by name, but he did make clear his position on those kinds of statements. And she very explicitly, I thought, declined a number of opportunities to do something similar. Uh, Michael, let's talk about religious liberty. Uh, In an interesting exchange with Senator Durbin, 
Judge Barrett recalled that when she interviewed for her job with Justice Scalia, he asked what area of the court's precedent she thought needed to be better organized. And uh, off the cuff, she said, uh, well, I fell down a rabbit hole of trying to explain without success how one might see one's way through the thicket of balancing the establishment clause against the free exercise clause. That's quite you can, quite a clerkship uh, interview. Um, and uh, I'm, my question to you is, uh, what can we learn from her answers in the hearings and from her jurisprudence about how she would balance the establishment and free exercise clause and uh, what her views on religious exemptions from uh, generally applicable laws might be? Well, she uh, again. There's not a long record there either as a as an academic. This, this wasn't uh, a field she she worked in particularly. There have been a few cases. Uh, so again, in the Seventh Circuit, in passing, where she's uh, voted on a panel that, for instance, one involving a Jewish school and a ministerial exception case involving a teacher. Um, but there was an exchange with Senator Lee, for example, uh, about the court's recent. Uh, religion clause cases from this past summer, uh, and uh, and uh, ministerial exception and and others. Uh, I, I think it's uh, given the the fact that the court will this fall hear this case Fulton versus Philadelphia involving a religious exemption issue, where the question of whether or not the court should revisit the landmark 1990 free exercise case Employment Division versus Smith, written interestingly by Justice Scalia for whom she clerked. But where I think a lot of um, a lot of judicial conservatives have started to wonder whether Smith, either wholesale or at least in part, should be uh, sh- should be revisited, um, I, and I think that it's not at all clear where where she might fall on that. Um, I think other conservatives on the court, such as Justice Alito, have clearly indicated their willingness to revisit Smith. Uh, but I, I don't think we have much from her record to indicate where where she would go on this. I mean, obviously, she's she herself is a person of faith. I think has a you know a deep commitment to to religious freedom, but what that would cash out in doctrinally in terms of say uh, a case like Fulton versus Philadelphia, I, I think that's that's very much uncertain. Uh, as you say, she discussed the ministerial exemption with Senator Lee and also with Senator Hawley, who asked her whether she agreed with the court's unanimous decision in the Hosanna Tabor case, and just Judge Barrett said that she was on the panel that decided this case called Groskett, which Michael, you mentioned, which applied the Hosanna Tabor case to the situation of a Jewish school, which had fired a teacher and the teacher sued. And uh, the question uh, that the court decided was um, my court said that she was a minister and we took the factors in Hosanna Tabor and said, nothing was a bright line test. And that view of ours was embraced by the Supreme Court last term in Our Lady of Guadalupe. Um, Kate, help disaggregate this for We the People listeners. And how do you think she'd come down on this question of how broad ministerial and other religious exemptions should be? Well, I think the language of the Guadalupe case from last term um, leaves some room for question about applicability to employees of religious institutions who don't do what the teachers in that case did, which was provide some religious instruction along with secular instruction. So you think about the huge range of other kinds of employees that a religious uh, school, university, hospital might have, and whether or not the you know generally applicable anti-discrimination laws would apply to those kinds of employees who just happen to work for religious institutions but don't you know necessarily do any kind of religious instruction as part of their duties. I think that the Guadalupe case doesn't really answer that question, but I think that, uh, or it leaves it at least open, but I think that uh, the addition of a Judge Barrett to the Supreme Court, um, to my mind at least, suggests that 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 
very quickly we will see the breadth of that opinion and and that i think would be would would mean if if religious employers um are free to you know, treat to, to 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 deal with their employees without regard to the generally applicable anti-discrimination laws, whether that's to do with race or age or sex, um, or disability or any other kinds of anti-discrimination prohibitions. Um, that's a huge swath of workers who end up essentially outside of the protections of federal anti-discrimination laws uh, and maybe state ones as well um, under the guise of free exercise. And so, so I I would imagine that uh, we might see the expansion of either protection for religious employers or. Or, or you might sort of view it as exemptions from anti-discrimination laws for these religious employers. Um, and so those consequences could be quite significant. And, and I do think that they're likelier, that is the likelier next stage of development in this area of doctrine with the addition of Barrett to the Supreme Court. Michael, can you point to examples where Justice Barrett, if she's confirmed, might reach constitutional conclusions that diverge from her policy views. Both Justice Scalia and Justice Gorsuch, for example, have joined liberal justices in Fourth Amendment cases involving unreasonable searches and seizures. Um, On the bench, Judge Barrett did uh, express some questions about qualified immunity in a case involving the police, or at least refused to apply it. And she also, uh, in the hearings, said it was hard to look at America and not imagine in a system as large as ours that there was no unconscious bias. Are there areas you can point to where you, sh- you think her, her constitutional and, and policy views might diverge? I do think that criminal law over the last maybe decade or so uh, has been the area in which uh, judicial conservatives committed to originalism have found themselves most often at odds with, I don't, I don't know if one would say their policy preferences, but to the extent that judicial conservatives might have a maybe kind of anti-criminal defendant um, uh, you know, set of views. But nonetheless, uh, in the Confrontation Clause context, uh, Justice Scalia famously uh, took a view that uh, required a lot more on the part of the government to satisfy the requirements under the Confrontation Clause. And and as you mentioned, in other criminal procedure areas. So I think I think that's one. And, and uh, of course, she has participated already in a fair number of of those kinds of criminal procedure issues on on the Seventh Circuit. So that, that's someone that leaps out to me. I, I also think that it's still very much um, yet to be seen in the administrative law context the extent to which uh, a more conservative Supreme Court will or will not revisit things like the non-delegation doctrine, uh, deference to administrative agencies, because those two, it strikes me, like criminal law, uh, have kind of cross-cutting considerations. Justice Scalia, for example, uh, was something of a defender of the Chevron doctrine, uh, which is the view that the court should defer to the findings of administrative agencies uh, with regard to certain kinds of uh, uh, interpretations. But at the same time, uh, you know, people like Justice Gorsuch now uh, have a much stronger view of the judicial role in policing the administrative state. Uh, so that's another area in which, again, one's policy preferences and one's views about the uh, deference of courts. I think uh, you know, judicial conservatives are, are kind of trying to figure out what the uh, what their views should be. And, and I think Justice Barrett would uh, a Justice Barrett, if she's confirmed, would be would be very much part of that debate as well. Kate, what are the areas where you think? Justice Barrett's uh, policy and constitutional views might uh, diverge. I I would agree that on um, 
some Fourth Amendment, and there's evidence of this in her Seventh Circuit record, but on, in some Fourth Amendment cases in which she found that, you know, that, that say, just the simple uh, fact of suspicion of gun possession is not enough to justify a Terry stop, or in which she um, voted to deny qualified immunity to some prison officials. I mean, I, I think that she has um, joined some more liberal colleagues on the Seventh Circuit in voting in ways favorable to criminal defendants um, or prisoners that might run against her policy preferences. I don't really know. Um, on the administrative law issues, I, I agree she hasn't written much, um, but I, I assume she will join the chorus of skeptics about, you know, or or, or, or enthusiasts, depending on, I guess, your, your perspective, um, on maybe reviving a robust version of the non-delegation doctrine, maybe on scaling back deference to agencies. It is, of course, true that Justice Scalia was a defender of Chevron deference, although by his later years on the court, I think he had to uh, come around to a degree of skepticism. So I think that you already had four votes on the court for things like reviving a robust version of the non-delegation doctrine um, and whether that, you know, what kind of revival that would look like with a fifth vote from a Justice Barrett. I don't know, but it, I think it could have very significant consequences for the ability of the administ- administrative state to function at all. Um, you know, Congress has been making broad delegations against the backdrop of an understanding of a certain um, kind of standard that it has to satisfy. And if all of a sudden it has, it is told it is not, it is doing, it is delegating too much without giving sufficient guidance to agencies, that could destabilize a huge amount of the work that administrative agencies do. Um, in you know everything from environmental regulation to uh, labor regulation, uh, you know and beyond, it's literally every sort of facet of American life is touched by the work that agencies do, and I think it is possible that a fifth vote that calls into question the constitutional legitimacy of much of that work, um, you know, is possible with a Justice Barrett. Michael, I have urged we the people listeners during each confirmation hearing to read the transcripts uh, on the notion that there is much to learn that may be missed. What would you like to call out as uh, an exchange or an insight that you learned from the hearings that you'd like to share with our We the People listeners about Judge Barrett? Uh, Well, take one from each side. I thought that uh, on the Democratic side, I thought the interchanges with uh, Senator Coons, uh, we mentioned this earlier, but I, I think it's worth underscoring, with Sarah Coons about precedent and, and uh, stare decisis and how that squares with the theory of, of originalism, uh, I thought that was that was especially interesting and 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 revealing. It w- didn't try to sort of play a gotcha game about you know whether or not Griswold versus Connecticut was rightly decided or something like that, but that instead uh, was really trying to get at methods of interpretation and, and how one how uh, Judge Barrett interprets the Constitution. Uh, and then on the Republican side, um, uh, there are uh, non-lawyers on both sides, but the Republicans have some, uh, some non-lawyers, one of whom is Ben Sass, who is senator from Nebraska, but has a PhD in history from Yale, and, and so took, that oppor- took the opportunity of his own background to kind of talk about the role of judges. Um, it, a lot of it was you know, him speaking and then kind of saying, don't you agree uh, to Judge Barrett? But, <laughs> but, but I did think that a lot of what Senator Sass said about, uh, about the role of the judiciary and the difference between uh, the more conservative view that he represents on that side of the committee uh, about, about what judges should be doing and the difference between what Congress does and what judges should be doing, uh, I thought that was also a very interesting, very rich. Uh, as he, I think, said in his opening statement, it's kind of a, he kind of took it as an opportunity for a kind of civics lesson for the American people. And so I, I, would, uh, I would call the listeners' attention to that as well. Uh, Kate, the last word is to you. 
Uh, are there moments in the hearings, perhaps on both sides, that you would like to call We the People listeners' attention to um, as homework and to elevate themselves as we all attempt to learn from these confirmation hearings? Well, one, I'm not sure is so elevated, but I did want to flag one thing, which was an exchange um, that that ended with a, a discussion a little bit of climate change. Um, and so, and so, so she was pressed on this question: Do you believe that you know? Essentially, the point um, the point of this exchange was that some things are are not subject to debate or controversy. Is uh, is COVID contagious? Does smoking cause cancer? And she was willing to say yes to both of those. But when confronted with a question about climate change, is climate change, uh, you know? caused by humans, something like that. She retreated and sort of said, that's a contested question. And I think that for me raised some alarm bells. Um, justices, what, whatever she said, and she she said this repeatedly, and I think in good faith she meant she meant it, um, I would leave my views and beliefs and preferences at the door, that none of that would have anything to do with my work as a judge, that this is a human endeavor. And there are limitations to our ability to leave our preconceptions at the door for everyone. And so, so you know, I think that the idea that she is unwilling to accept, I think, science on climate or at least broadcast some skepticism about it, I found actually quite concerning. Um, and uh, just, you know, it just as, as revealing the limitations of one's ability to, to not allow, you know, limitations, views, preconceptions to sort of enter the job of judging. Um, and, and to go back to Griswold, I actually found her resistance to answering directly a question of whether Griswold, whether it's a super precedent or not, whether it's settled law, I found concerning as well. I mean, that was a, that sort of brought me back to the Bork confirmation hearings, right? So one of the things that really, I think, led to the failure of Judge Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court was his expressed skepticism for Griswold. Now, she wouldn't. She certainly wasn't explicit about her skepticism. Um, and she did say something that he said, which is that this is sort of, no one is coming for your contraception. Like, no one is trying to criminalize contraception right now. Um, And yet, I think it's certainly Justice Thomas, I think, harbors doubts about the constitutional foundations of Griswold. Um, And and if she genuinely does not believe the Constitution protects a right of privacy, right, against potential governmental intrusion into the marital bedroom, which was at issue in Griswold, I think that suggests that she could really have a transformational effect on the law as it has been settled. Um, And I think that that we would do better to have a forthright conversation about that um, than to suggest that, well, because no one is looking now to criminalize contraception. Ideas move from off the wall to on the wall, sometimes very quickly. Um, uh, and so I wish that the senators had more effectively drawn her out into, into a substantive conversation about some of the bases of, of decisions like Griswold rather than just accept that, you know, she's not going to give any view and this no one's really going to bring a case that asks the court to revisit Griswold anyway. I'm not sure all of that is true. Thank you so much, Michael Moreland and Kate Shaw, for following the confirmation hearings so closely and guiding We the People listeners through them so thoughtfully. Dear listeners, in the spirit that Michael and Kate have offered, your homework is to read the transcripts. Uh, I, I know it'll take some eating of your spinach, but it's worthwhile. We will post the transcripts on our resource page at constitutioncenter.org. And if you read them through, and if there's an exchange or moment that strike you as unusually illuminating uh, or surprising, and you'd like to share it with me, uh, please do, Rosen at constitutioncenter.org. And until then, Michael, Kate, thank you very much for an illuminating and educational discussion. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mac Taylor 
Ashley Kemper and Lana Ulrich. Homework of the week? You heard it, dear We The People friends. Please read the transcripts of the Barrett hearings. We are posting them on our resource page at constitutioncenter.org. You can skim them. You don't have to read every word. But if you find an exchange that strikes you as unusually illuminating about Judge Barrett's constitutional philosophy and you want to share it with me and tell me why, please email me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. And also, please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends. Thanks so much to those of you who are leaving reviews. It makes a big difference and helps other people find us so they can share the constitutional light. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org, give a donation at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate, or just write to me and tell me why you listen to the show and why it is meaningful to you. Your emails are really energizing for our entire team. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.